My guest on the Circle of Competence podcast this week is Trish Higgins. Trish is a partner at Chenmark, a holding company for small and medium-sized businesses looking for a permanent home. Trish, now an investor in Main Street, was formerly an investor on Wall Street and worked for both Protégé Partners as well as AQR prior to joining Chenmark. Trish, welcome to the Circle of Competence podcast. Thank you. Great to be here. Absolutely. Well, thanks for coming on. Why don't we level set and just just, uh, spend maybe two minutes and give us your background leading up to... um, your time at Chenmark. Sure. So let's see. Um, most importantly, I am Canadian. So there you go. Uh, I uh, I went to school in the states um, and happened to sort of stumble my way into the hedge fund world right out of college, which was entirely a sort of mistake um, or accident, I say. And. Uh, sort of became involved in sort of hedge fund investing space as well as like the macro hedge fund investing world. Um, I did that for three to four years, went to business school. Um, after that, worked at a firm called AQR, which was a, a client investing shop. Um, and uh, just started to feel honestly a little bored um, with the work I was doing. And I not anything against sort of AQR or asset management in general. I just personally felt like I wanted to do something that was a bit more hands-on and, and operational. And um, I sort of had looked around and seen a lot of really you know impressive people and said, you know, hey, all of those people at some point took a risk and started to do something themselves. And if I want to be in their seat one day, I'm going to have to do that myself. Um, and so along with my husband and brother-in-law, uh, we all sort of had similar finance, more traditional finance backgrounds. And we felt um, all that similar sort of restlessness a little bit and said, hey, you know, let's try to do something else. Um, You know, the idea of buying a small business um, came up. We've heard you could buy uh, businesses that had good cash flow yields uh, for good multiples. And so sort of after the fact, we heard, you know, that's called a search fund. Um, But our goal had always been to build a portfolio of them, um, of sort of steadily, uh, sort of cash flow producing assets. So uh, that's where the idea came from, and we sort of officially decided to do it in September of 2014. And we bought our first company in 2015, and uh, have just been working on that ever since. That's quite a transition from from again from Wall Street to Main Street. I want to focus on that one year where like were you working and sort of you know talking with business brokers like what was that transition period like yeah so very different from a lot of the searchers that I talk with now um again we didn't really have like the traditional search fund playbook that we were working off of so when we decided to start um and pursue this as an idea we were all still working our full-time jobs um and we were basically started by testing the market. So we just went to all the normal websites um, and sort of reaching out to brokers and looking at listings and really just educating ourselves on what the opportunity set was and how do you even start to do this. So it was something they started off doing on nights and weekends. Um, and as it became more of a real opportunity, um, we all sort of slowly like rolled off of our, our formal jobs and decided to focus on this. So I was the last to like officially quit my job. And that's really because I just started to feel like um, I really liked all the people I worked with. And I started to feel like I was lying to them about like what I was, was really going on in my life. Um, and so 
it worked out pretty well because um, James and Palmer both had like pretty flexible schedules, so they could take calls like during the day if they needed to. And a lot of small business owners really prefer to meet on weekends um, when their stuff isn't there. So we ended up doing a lot of like weekend type visits and stuff like that. And so it'd be a little awkward to like go into the office and be like, what do you do this weekend? We'd say, well, um, really, I like hopped on a plane. I flew somewhere. I did like diligence and met an owner and then I flew back. And so uh, that's where I started to feel like I was lying. Um, that's just, I wasn't, you know, sharing what was going on in my life. Um, and so we, um, we kind of did that sort of like half and half thing until we had a, the company that we ultimately bought that we felt pretty sure was going to close. And we felt, you know, even if it didn't close, um, it was, you know, we were fully committed and bought into the opportunity set. Um, so that period of time kind of like allowed us to gain confidence in what we were doing, feel like it was a real thing um, and sort of ultimately um, be able to, to take the leap of quitting our, our, our jobs and doing it. And so um, James and I had bought a house. Um, so, you know, we sold our house for a period there. We kind of like moved back in with James and Palmer's parents, which I'm sure they thought we were like total losers. Um, uh, moving back in and uh, living out of like a guest room for um, a couple months until the deal closed and or was very close to closing and we sort of officially felt like we could move up to Portland which is where the deal was and um, sort of start establishing roots there so uh, yeah it was I, it was actually a, a lot of people feel or sort of ask me um, like do I have to quit my job? Like, can I do this on the side? Um, and obviously, we started off doing it on the side. I think the big thing for us is um, one. Obviously, three people. I think probably equals the bandwidth of one full-time person. So three part-time people equals one full-time person. So I think it would be really hard to do if it was just me um, or just one of us. But because we had a group to do it with, we could very easily say, "Oh, well, you know." talking to a broker or business owner would be like, oh, well, I can't do that call or that meeting, but you know, my, you know, my husband can, or, you know, and we kind of transition back and forth. And so I think it worked for us I, um, in our situation. I don't know if it would work for everybody, but um, it certainly, I think, really helped us kind of leg into the opportunity. Yeah, that's one thing that, that I'd like to explore, part like partnerships. Mm -hmm. Now, obviously you were partnered with family. Yeah but non-family partnerships, like what do you, what do you advise people who are thinking about that? Because from what I've heard, you know, searching can be a very lonely and like really tough grind, especially if you don't have connections in a market or, you know, there's just lots of things that you sort of have to just bootstrap on your own. So just talk to partnerships for a moment or two. Yeah. So I can only speak to my experience. Right. Um, and so I think having a family partnership is wonderful. Um, I think that especially in this space, um, more people should do it. I think historically there have been, you know, a lot of, you know, family run businesses and there are fewer of those today than, than there ever have been. Um, and I think that's a shame because I think that, you know, especially when people talk about sort of work-life balance and all those sorts of things, um, if you run your business with, you know, your partner or a family member, um, I think you really can in some ways achieve um, a really unique mixture of work and, and sort of personal life um, in a way that's hard to do if you are, you know, just work is work and family's family. Um, 
you know, like a very tangible example might be um, like I have two little kids, you know, let's say one of them sick um, in a normal sort of traditional world, like uh, corporate world that, you know, can be stressful. Instead, it's sort of like, okay, James, well, you know, I've got this meeting at nine, so you stay home, and then you've got that meeting at 11, so I'll come home, you can do the meeting at 11, and that, and you know, it's just, it's very fluid, um, and I think there's something really wonderful about that, um, especially when you're raising a family, and so I, uh, I recommend it to anybody who can, um, uh, for that, who, who's thinking about it. Um, in terms of, like, bigger partnerships, or, like, non-family partnerships, I'd say that, it has to be somebody that you have um, complementary skill set with clearly. Um, I think that it's really important um, that you have all of those like defining conversations about like what are we really trying to get out of this? How are we going to, you know, work through conflicts? And something that we've done really well is kind of like we have certain ground rules that um, of, of working together. Uh, and I think that served us really well, um, and I think could serve people well, regardless of if they're, you know, family or non-family. Um, I mean, I, it, it is, you're doing this for a long time, and it is an all-encompassing um, sort of endeavor, and there is risk and stress involved with it. And so, you know, you really have to feel like you really know and trust the person. So I, I, you know, somebody who says, oh, well, you know, I'm looking to do a search and I met this other guy's looking to do a search. So we're thinking of doing it together. I'm always like, oh, well, you know, I hope that works out. But like, you're really committing to something and, uh, you know, it may not. And so, you know, all else equal, unless I had somebody I really trusted uh, to do um, a search with, you know, frankly, I would probably do one alone. Uh, but it depends. I think the other thing is, again, like the plug for the family situation, um, is that you know the, the biggest downside I think of having a partner is you have to share the economics with them, right? Um, but when you're a family and we're trying to build like a family thing, like it doesn't really matter quite as much. Um, and so I think that sometimes can make it a little like we just spend very like no time thinking about that sort of thing. Um, because so, at the end of the day, it's all kind of going back into the same pot. So it, that, it's helpful. Yeah, that's that's a great way to look at it. I think it's I think one thing that we've sort of all seen you know, during the pandemic is that the people uh, and I've certainly experienced this. My wife is a nurse, so her schedule is very inflexible mm -hmm. and I have a fairly flexible, you know, kind of work from home situation as well. But um, yeah, it can be tough if, if two people don't work together and don't have flexible schedules and do have kids. I have a, a newborn, um, a young child, too. So, uh, yeah, five months, no sleep. So. <laughs> Talk, so, so you have this transition from Wall Street to Main Street, but it's with, you know, it's with family. Talk about the why behind, you know, and you, you've, you've hit on it, but like, what was that conversation like when, when you were both like, you know what, we really want to go like grind in the small, medium-sized business arena. Just talk about what appealed to you and kind of really what, what, what helps you make that decision. Yeah, I'd say it wasn't like this like big moment where like we were like three of us were sitting around a table and it was like, you know, the heavens shone down upon us and we said, we're going to start this thing. Um, the, the driving, like, first and foremost, like, you know, we did come from Wall Street. We do like making money. And it started off as, um, hey, we think this is actually a really good investment. And when we think about areas that we can become involved with for the next, you know, 20, 30 
years. Um, you know, if we're 60 and someone says, oh, hey, those were the people who did that. And they're like, oh, you know, like that's cool. And like that they were doing that. Um, like I can see this being one of those spaces. And um, we just said, hey, there's a huge number of small businesses out there. It's incredibly fragmented market. Transactions are incredibly efficient um, or inefficient, sorry. And um, we think there's an opportunity it, um, for somebody like us to come in and build quite a large portfolio because any individual transaction, you know, private equity doesn't care about, it's too small. Um, there's a nuance to the space and, you know, we feel like we can um, capture and create a tremendous amount of value by focusing on this area and becoming, you know, experts in small business transactions um, and management. And so it started off, you know, as an investment thesis uh, that was market opportunity underpinned by like traditional investment or um, like efficient market hypothesis, which is basically like if we take a bunch of um, uncorrelated assets and put them together, like we have a really nice risk adjusted um, portfolio. Um, and that's something that I was sort of like hammered into me at, at, at EQR. And, you know, we, we all sort of said, hey, you know, if we could have a portfolio of these companies that generate cash flow and uncorrelated to the, the global markets, which our portfolio is, um, it's much more correlated to just idiosyncratic events like, you know, how much did it snow in New Hampshire and, um, you know, what's the price of wheat in Western Canada and, and you know, like all these sorts of random things. But um, when you think about putting it in a portfolio with like the S&P or something like it, 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 it offers a nice um, risk adjusted return. So that's where it started was us getting excited about the investment philosophy that still holds. And we're still very excited about that. Um, we don't spend a lot of time thinking about it because it just like it holds. Um, the thing that gets us um, excited on a day-to-day -day basis though, is this idea of um, we've, we've had incredibly um, sort of collectively like fortunate and privileged upbringing. We've had the opportunity to go to some of the best schools in the world. And we felt like if we're given that opportunity to have, um, you know, access to that type of um, education experience, um, we felt an obligation to do something with it that was sort of beyond like just sitting creating powerpoints and sort of shuffling numbers around um and for us it just felt like you know why not see if any of the things that we've learned um or read about if if we could actually take an idea and make it real um and that that's what is exciting to us and what is still exciting to us and i think that people who you know come work with us that's what is exciting to them as well. It's about saying, hey, you know, I've sat behind a desk, I've done analysis a lot, but like the beauty is in taking analysis and then taking it to a bunch of people who have no idea what you're talking about and trying to like make it a reality. Um, and that can be a very, very frustrating process, but also a very rewarding process. Um, and something that, you know, ultimately is what gets us excited. And, you know, we say often that even if there's, you know, even if we're completely wrong about the financial theory and, and the, um, you know, there is no return. Um, the ability to actually, you know, take ideas and try to make them into reality on sort of a big and a very, very small micro scale um, is very rewarding. So in some cases, like for us, it just like personally doesn't really matter that much um, at this point. So um, yeah, those are kind of the whys behind what we're doing. The uh, 
um, the, the greedy moneymaker and the altruistic side both. <laughs> What you just said, the, the the first part, obviously, you know, nobody gets into investing to, to lose money. But the second part is something, the way that you phrased it is 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 in a way that I've really never uh, been able to put into words. And, and I started this podcast because I always studied the great investors and have enjoyed reading about the great operators as well, like the John Malones of the world who could who could do exactly what you just said. They could understand the financial and the capital side of things, but then actually like go make it happen. And I think that those types of people are fundamentally just a rare breed because a lot of times you have people that just go and they just allocate capital and that's what they do. And that's fine. That's a very important role in society, but then you've kind of have to have these other people that are doers. Um, and you have a lot of doers out there, a lot of entrepreneurs, you know, God help them, like the Adam Newmans of the world that are like super doers, but like they're just not very, uh, maybe not so skilled at the capital allocation piece. So when you marry these two together, um, you know, it's a beautiful thing. So it's one of the reasons why I wanted to, you know, get a chance to chat with you. So I'm excited about it. I, I want to go back to your first purchase, the first business. What was it? Talk us to the transaction and then we'll kind of roll forward through that uh, on some other successive topics and, and, and transactions. Sure. So the first company we bought um, was a property service company. So uh, basically landscaping, snow removal for um, hospitals, schools, um, commercial complexes, um, things like that. Um, we were interested in that profile of business um, because it has mostly contracted recurring revenue, um, especially in the space that we play in, you know, um, and the fact that we bought the company with zero operational experience of any sort. Um, having recurring revenue really helps uh, give you um, a lot of room for error, a lot of margin of safety in sort of investment speak. Um, and so it gave us, and still gives us the ability to um, implement new things, le you know, learn um, about different, you know, aspects of the business without sort of risking the business itself. Um, and so that's, and, and so we still like that type of business in not, we still like landscaping, but um, just things that are contracted and reoccurring revenue um, just gives us sort of predictability. So we will, in our model, we will happily trade off um, like any like outsized upside returns for like mitigating downside risk. Um, so we bought that company. Uh, the At first, the owner stayed on um, and they stayed on for about a year. Uh, yeah, about a year. Um, and then uh, sort of parted ways. I think that was a good lesson for us in terms of, you know, when we first bought our company, we had this investment thesis. Um, and then we bought the company on the next day. We were like, what do we do now? Like, do we, do we go there? Do like, what do we do when we're there? Like, are we supposed to be telling people what to do? Do we not? Like there was in this business, there was clearly operate, like, I'm not a, like, operational guru but like i like think i have decent common sense and like just observing um the business you could see there were things that needed to change so for instance you know the the um you know 
people would just come to work and they just line up outside of like the two bosses doors and just wait to be told what to do that day. And like they could wait for like 30 minutes just waiting to be told what to do. So we're like, I know like that's not the right way to run a $10 million business. Um, I know there have, you know, things like that. So um, the, the fact that we bought the company, you know, we, we didn't really know like what we were doing from an operational perspective. We didn't really have a model in place or a framework or anything. We were really figuring it out. Um, and so in that um, kind of first year, I'd say like we probably caused a lot of frustration um, on the part to the owners um, because like we were figuring it out. Um, and so it didn't really work out between us. I can totally understand why. And we said, you know, we really need to have our own people um, in place in the companies um, who kind of understand what we're trying to do. Um, and uh, I think it's very rare for an owner to stay on and, and be um, sort of like up for all the changes that we're gonna make. And we're not looking at changes like some sort of scary private equity firm is doing like changes as in like come in and like fire everyone and do all sorts of like cost rationalization. rationalization. Um, we're talking about more like, you know, changes like, you know, a lot of the businesses we buy have, have never used, um, uh, so they're all on cash accounting. So like we switch everyone to accrual accounting because like that's what you're supposed to do. Um, but like that in and of itself is um, a headache and a lot of people think is like ridiculous if they've never done it before. Um, you know, things like that, that we're bringing in um, that we feel strongly will improve the company. But, you know, if you've been in a certain framework and mindset for 20, 30 years, you know, might not be, yeah, no, that makes sense. I want to dive back into the owner piece of that and sort of how you struck, like what the structure of the transaction was. Like, was that a part of the structure or did you, do you all just buy the business with the intention of, of keeping the owner just to transition ownership, but to, to let the owner sort of operate? So honestly, at the first one, it was a little, we were just kind of, we had them stay on in their roles and we said we were going to help them grow. Um, that's a terrible agreement and structure is rife for confusion. Um, and so, you know, they rolled equity, um, and, uh, provided a seller note. Um, and then we provided the rest in, in equity. And I think it just, their expectations, um, versus our expectations were, were different about kind of like what was going to happen. I think they thought we would come in and basically solve all their problems for them. And like, they weren't going to have to do any like work they didn't want to do. Um, and, you know, our position was, um, you know, well, no, like, you know, you still need to manage the people and manage the business. And once you do that, well, then we can grow. Um, and so, you know, obviously that causes, you know, is a difference of opinion and, and frankly is, is a lot on us for not, being able to articulate that like during the deal process and we didn't articulate it because we didn't even know sort of how to because uh, we were just kind of figuring it out so you know that's part of i, I think our attitude it really is um sort of a confidence that we'll figure it out um and so i think a lot of people who are, might think about this space end up sort of becoming paralyzed and not doing a deal um, because they're sort of afraid about the things that might happen. And our stance has always been like, we're buying these assets for, for good prices, which means that like, 
we can afford to figure things out along the way. And um, that's part of our model. And we feel comfortable with that uncertainty of saying like, well, like, yeah, we bought this company and like, yep, not sure what we're doing, but we're going to figure it out. And, um, you know, the benefit of that is, um, you know, uh, you know, five, six ish years later, we now feel much more confident that we have a playbook that we know what we're doing um, in terms of like when we buy a company and kind of what happens, all that sort of stuff. So, um, but that's been just the, the product more of the experience than like of the analysis, I'd say. No, that makes sense. That makes sense. Now rolling forward on some of your more, you know, uh, or your later transactions, do you typically allow sellers to roll equity? Is that one way that you sort of incentivize them post-close, even if they don't have a role in the company? Or are you all typically buying out the entire business? Uh, yeah, so we have, currently we are buying out 100% of the business. Um, we're taking over control and um, uh, sort of moving on from there. So, and, and that has a lot to do with, you know, we are targeting businesses that have retiring owners. So, you know, for most people that we are working with, like the profile is somebody who's in their sixties, this is their retirement fund. They're looking to get out and they don't have any other options for who to sell their business to. So, you know, we're not really working with people in their forties who, you know, are looking to make, you know, have a second sort of stage of their career. We're really looking for like providing people with their retirement funds um, and they're going to go travel the world and not worry about anything to do with their business anymore. And so it's just a product of what we're, um, you know, how we're set up. Yeah, no, that makes sense. I want to transition just a little bit, kind of hone in on one thing that you said, these owners are looking to retire. Mm -hmm. And they don't have a ton of folks who are actively out there looking for smaller, medium-sized businesses to to buy. They're just not the buyer pool is not huge. It's not a huge liquid market like the lower middle market or the middle market or even you know the the largest companies out there to, to buy. But I feel like there's been a, a real uh, explosion in search funds nowadays. But you know the chin marks, the permanent equities of the world, the holding companies of the world. I feel like are much better suited to sort of buying these companies and having them live inside of a holding company structure, you know, as a having a permanent home, what other sort of maybe not variables, but things do y'all sell potential sellers on watch and mark is a, is a good home for, for their business? Yeah. So a couple different ways to answer that, but the one is, you know, just being family run resonates with people um, because they tend, you know, a lot of businesses are family run either formally or informally. Uh, so we can kind of connect on that level. Uh, being uh, long-term holders is, you know, important uh, because, uh, you know, we're not just looking to sort of flip it to someone else. So people feel like comfortable with us. Um, we tend to, um, for the most part, sort of keep brand names and all that stuff. So, you know, somebody's legacy is, is, is you know, carried on. Is intact. Yep. Right. Uh, we tend to keep all of the employees. Um, uh, I'd say not tend. We do keep all of the employees. Um, and so there's no sort of, you know, coming in and cost cuttings or anything like that that we do. We tend to buy the companies because we feel comfortable with them as standalone entities. So, um, you know, in most cases, I think every case we've actually added benefits to the employees. Um, and not taking anything away. So I think people who feel, you know, strongly about um, their employees being taken care of, um, 
that would resonate, uh, we would resonate with them. Um, and then I'd say this applies more in the sort of local community as well as the um, sort of like some of the industries we, we've participated in um, is that uh, people like sort of just know that I, we try as best as we can to be transparent in our dealings um, and easy to work with. You know, we're still talking about transactions, so there's still kind of like legal work and all that stuff, but we hope that overall people have a decent experience with us. And even if it doesn't work out, they still feel like they can maintain a relationship and stuff. So um, a lot of our deal flow has really been more um, inbound from people who have just heard about us kind of like from their, you know, oh, you know, my, um, you know, my friends um, sold their business to you and, you know, thought you might be a good fit or, you know, my son-in-law works at your company and he says it's been a good transition and things like that. Um, so we kind of feel like that's a better longer term play for us. We don't really do a lot of aggressive outreach or anything like that um, because we kind of like that, that inbound, that proprietary inbound. Um, that's become more regionally for us and we hope, you know, that'll grow um, over time. Yeah, that's no, that's a, a good thing. I, I definitely want to highlight that you all have one of my favorite weekly newsletters that I read, and it's uh, it's fantastic. So I'll link to that in the show notes. And I've really enjoyed reading y'all's commentary, and you always put out something new and, and fresh. I think, um, and I I run a weekly newsletter, and it's it's you know if I if I can write like you all do, I I'd, I'd be pretty happy. So I'll I'll link to that. Well, we actually um, just on that. Um, so we started that like pretty much when we first start, like we're serious about Trendmark. And it was really because we said like, we have zero track record. Nobody like cares about us. Um, and uh, we need to have some sort of credibility. Um, and so we said, hey, if we write a weekly newsletter, we can put brokers and business owners, anybody we meet, we can just put them on this list. And then they'll hear from us weekly. So they're kind of like, okay, those, those people like, kind of some name recognition and if they're interested there's like a body of work for them to go to to see how we think because for a, a you know a, a business owner they kind of want to see like who are these people and what do they care about and what are their values and all that stuff and so we just started doing it uh to help build um a, you know sort of the um the, the illusion of uh um knowing what we were doing or like being kind of like a, a real firm when when we started doing it we you know it was sort of a, a side thing um and now it sort of just evolved into its own thing where we kind of can keep in touch with a, a broader network of people which is wonderful and, and it also forces us to read um more broadly and sort of spend some time each week sort of synthesizing our thoughts um which i think is a really sort of valuable healthy um forcing function as well so it, uh, yeah. No, I, I, I'm in agreement. Yeah. When you put something out there publicly, it's hard to sort of rescind that um, because you, you feel almost like you've sort of made this public pact and, and you can't go back on your promise now. So yeah. um, no, but I love it. I love it. And, and great job on everything y'all y'all put out so far. It's fantastic. You write a lot about operations. Yeah. I want to talk about what things you all look to or what levers you look to pull post-close to grow some of the businesses that you all have, have bought so far. Mm-hmm. So, okay, so in the world of small business, um, they, business, the businesses that we work with tend to be very good at sort of their 
whatever their core competency is. They tend not to be as good at like sort of the periphery of business, sort of like what we call the business of business. And so, and it's just because um, often that's not what the owner's expertise is in. Um, often the, the owner started this business when they were very young, never worked at, you know, other larger firms that maybe like they got some exposure to how, you know, certain processes are run at larger firms. Um, and so when we buy a business, we tend to see sort of deficiencies um, in sort of uh, accounting, uh, marketing, uh, finance, uh, technology, and HR. So basically all of the business. Um, and, um, and we're okay. like, that's okay. Like it's just the way it is. It's, it's totally understandable. Um, and so what we start with is, um, you know, an example would be, uh, you know, a, a company that's doing payroll by hand. You know, that takes up a lot of time. So, you know, the, one of the very first priorities would be installing, you know, a payroll system, right? That, you know, so that sort of, you know, and, and, and in that payroll system, then you're making sure that you've got all the proper, you know, documentation going in through there. You've got, you know, employees, um, you know, you have a, you know, you put together an employee handbook, you outlines all your policies, you have your employees all sign it, you know, you have kind of all these things that, uh, like a lot of people wouldn't even necessarily consider things. Um, but when they're absent, you notice that and it's, it, it, it is one risk for the business from a legal perspective, but it also sort of reflects a lack of process um, that, um, you know, is, is certainly probably felt uh, by the employee base, because, um, you know, they're, you know, if there's no payroll system, there's, um, there's probably some errors in the payroll, or it's late, or um, there's no handbook, there's a lack of understanding what the policies are, what do you do if you have a problem? Um, uh, you know, what do I have to, how many vacation days do I get? How's that being tracked? Um, I have a disagreement about that, you know, all these things um, that I think are pretty fundamental to running a business, especially one that wants to grow, that um, has to be there. So that would be on the HR side, finance side, I'd say the cash to accrual thing is, is a big one. Um, so uh, sort of putting in place the systems to actually um, track that um, is a whole host of things. And, and a big thing on the finance side is also looking at like our working capital management. So trying to figure out, okay, you know, how quickly are we getting paid? How slowly are we paying people? Usually it's how slowly are we getting paid and how quickly are we paying people, um, which is not the way you want it. Uh, so a lot of work on kind of collections and uh, processing invoices and all of that sort of stuff. Um, uh, on the tech side, often there's just very low um, sort of tech issues with tech infrastructure. So we kind of go and redo all the tech infrastructure to make sure like the company can continue to run um, you know, it wouldn't be uncommon in a business that we went into that it would be like, oh, the power was out on Tuesday, so I didn't process, you know, the invoices, <laughs> or not the power, the uh, the internet was out on Tuesday, so I didn't process. So things like that happen. So making sure we've got better, um, uh, like critical infrastructure, security, that sort of stuff. Uh, so yeah, those are all kind of like there's a whole. So each area has its own kind of like host of things we could do it's gonna be different for each company because some company might be great in one area and like there's no nothing to be done. Some company might not. So we kind of 
internally kind of everybody knows what the things are in the different buckets um, and kind of can adjust according. So it's not like we go in and are like, this is exactly what you have to do. Like we don't force everyone to be on the same accounting software. We just, they need to be on an accounting software that can export into Excel, which. Right. <clears throat> I want to drill into the avenue of growing these businesses. And I want to kind of use an analogy that, that you used, I believe on, maybe it was Patrick O'Shaughnessy's podcast a while back, or maybe it was a talk with, with Will Thorndike, who I'm also a huge fan of, love his book, about <clears throat> buying these tackle shops on the lake. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, kind of using this landscaping business as the tackle shop. So do you think about growing these businesses? Like you can only sell so much tackle to so many fishermen on this one lake. Do you think about, uh, do you think about growth as buying more like landscape businesses at other lakes? Or do you think about uh, growth opportunities on that one lake or both? Like, how do you think about it from a portfolio level? If that makes yeah, sense. You know, it definitely does. Um, so a little, a little bit of both. Um, when we buy a company, um, so I guess if there are any people listening to this who don't know what you're talking about, I'll sorry, the, the idea is that you can, you know, a company can, that it ha- is in a particular niche can like a wonderful bait and tackle shop right beside an amazing fishing spot, you know, th- that, that shop can, can generate outsized returns but it might not be sort of a, an attractive quote unquote like traditional investment because there's nowhere to deploy those returns and grow the company because you, know, you don't need like a mega store bait and tackle you, you know um and a lot of what we're doing is trying to invest in those bait and tackle companies that a lot of other people don't think are interesting what we think is by putting them to a holding company structure we actually have a place to put those outsized returns which is, is where it becomes interesting from an investment perspective um, because, you know, we, when we underwrite a, a deal, um, we're really not um, thinking of it as growing a, a lot. Like most of our deals are sort of underwritten based on GDP-ish growth, maybe, maybe a little high, 5% or something. Like we're not underwriting things expecting large amounts of growth. Um, and what we're You're underwriting for high cash flow multiples. Exactly. So we're underwriting saying, okay, it might grow a little bit margins, margins might even compress a little bit. Um, and that we're generating cash flow and we're kicking it up to our holding company. And then we're using that to buy another company um, that is doing the same thing. That's then doing the same thing. And, um, and that to us is very attractive. It's very attractive in our model for a lot of other people. That's not a good investment. Um, and so it allows us to kind of buy some of these like orphan assets that, you know, people just don't like, there's not a lot of natural buyers for those. Um, and so we're really leaning into that. Um, and it also allows us to buy the assets at good valuations. Um, the flip side is that sometimes like a landscape company, some of these things that seem like bait and tackle shops can actually sometimes grow a little bit. So, um, especially through tack on acquisitions. So, um, like, our landscape company might just kind of grow at whatever the growth rate of Portland is basically. Um, but, uh, you know, if there's a, an owner who has a competing uh, company that's just slightly, you know, to the South, um, that's much smaller, you know, but they want to retire too. let's say, you know, if a 
typical landscape company for us has eight to 12 million of revenue. There's a lot of landscape companies out there that have one to 2 million of revenue and they need buyers too. And so in some of our spaces, we're, we're able to grow via acquisition um, just through these kind of like little tack on um, in our geographic area. Um, and that can be you know, interesting. And, and those companies, those little tiny landscape companies, they also don't have a lot of natural buyers um, because not a lot of people out there want to buy like a 1 million revenue landscape business. You know, in our areas we do. Uh, and, you know, often we're just, you know, those people have the option of just, you know, basically selling to us or um, sort of shutting down their shop and selling their equipment. Um, that's, you know, often what they're, they're offering. And it sounds like too, you know, if someone wanted to go in and buy that small business, I mean, it doesn't make quite enough money to support all of the functions that you listed earlier. And so you're buying, you know, if you're buying it, you're also buying a job uh, with all of those functions needed if you want to improve and grow the business. So it seems like just a, a more natural fit to to sort of roll those businesses up. Yeah. So you, you've bought like a tackle shop on a lake. So it's like a landscaping business and you're you're expanding it through bolt-ons and, and growing the, the underlying business. Have you bought like a, a snowball shop in a, in a grocery store parking lot? Like what, what's the next deal? What, what have some of the other deals looked like and have they, um, or, or other in industries that you guys have entered into after the landscaping industry? Yeah. So, okay. So we have landscaping. Um, and so we have a landscape company uh, for sort of throughout different metro areas in new England. Um, we do not plan to combine them um, because in our space sort of being the, the main player in like, your sort of third tier city is actually a really good spot to be. You don't really want to be like the super regional player. Like that actually detracts value because the property owners in those third tier cities want to deal with like the third tier city. Uh, Somebody who, who's local. Exactly. Exactly. So there's, there's no, like we would destroy value if we did that. So all of our backend systems, all the same and everything, but they are, um, they are standalone companies um, serving their local markets. Um, so, and then we have um, a lawn care business that's kind of landscaping, but it's, it's, it is actually, as you get into the space, a very different business. Um, so they do lawn care as well as like tick and mosquito control um, throughout New England. Um, we have a, this is different. Um, we have a food manufacturing business, um, makes frozen bread products. Um, that's a good business. Um, and then we also have a tourism business, um, a company that does uh, sightseeing tours, um, and uh, whale watches and puffin tours. So very different. Um, and you know, it, it, on the surface, it sounds random, but actually from our perspective, they're all great assets that we can own for the long-term to generate free cash flow. And that's really all we care about. They also have all the challenges small businesses have, which are all surprisingly similar. Uh, so they have, um, you know, similar, uh, you know, how do I implement employee bonus, you know, bonuses? Um, how do I uh, think about sort of pay raises based on skill set? How do I give performance reviews? You know, how do I think about, you know, tracking my operational data in a, you know, more nuanced way so I understand like gross profit by product or by business line? Um, you know, all of these, you know, COVID, I mean, how do we deal with COVID? You know, all, all of the the operational leadership challenges that we our companies are facing are very sim very very similar 
despite them being in different industries. I think it has more to do with the size of the business than it has to do with the industry. Uh, so we find a lot of um, really positive overlap there. You hit on something interesting that I do want to get into, which is, so we've talked about growing the business, but also growing employees and, and career opportunities and how do you sort of create those within your portfolio companies. But before we get get to that, you mentioned, so this tourism business, and I know you mentioned earlier that you like recurring revenue type businesses, contracted uh, revenue type businesses, but this seems a little bit less so that way, or, or am I misjudging so, that? So... Yes and no. So from our perspective, we felt like this company basically has um, a very strong competitive positioning in a very popular uh, main coastal town where they're the only whale watch company um, sightseeing to, way to get out on the water really um, option available. Um, and we felt like it's not contracted revenue, but it is reoccurring in the sense that it's basically a bet on people coming to Maine in the summertime and wanting to go on the water. And we felt like we felt like that is something people will want to continue to do. The company's been around since 1937 um, in the same family, and very wow, very yeah, very um, very successful, um, very profitable company um, that. Uh, um, you know, it's not, not, not like, it's never going to be a crazy, it's, it's a perfect bait and tackle shop thing. It's, it's a great sort of little business that you continue to run. And, you know, um, it, but it is, uh, um, we felt like very comfortable, say, with that thesis, you know, I think lots of people will keep coming to Maine, but always want to go out in the water. And so we felt comfortable. From that perspective, you know, Brent, Brent B. Shore, their company owns like a, a pool manufacturer, like a big uh, pool manufacturer installer. And his thesis boiled down to like, when people stop dipping their bodies into cool water during the summer, then, you know, we probably will probably do, be doing just fine. So, you know, it's kind of the same, same one lever, you know, I think people are going to be coming to Maine in the summers for a long time to come. So exactly. well, I want to move on to uh, a topic that is uh, very interesting to me because, you know, coming from Wall Street, it's very easy to look at businesses and investments like numbers on a on, on a piece of paper, but when you get into these small businesses, I would imagine the humanity becomes very much, uh, very much apparent. And so, just talk about how you think about culture and do you change the culture of a, of a small business? How do you or or if not, how do you try and continue a culture? What does that look like? How do you create opportunities for employees? Um. So I think every company has its own unique culture that, you know, we try to, you know, preserve and honor as much as we can, right? So the companies we buy are good and it's fine for them to, get, like, we're not, we're not going and trying to change a, a culture. Um, but like we are introducing new things, obviously. So um, I would say that sometimes people use culture as a, like, reason not to advance. So saying like, oh, well, you know, we don't need a budget because that's not how we do things here. Isn't really like, like that is a culture, but like, that's not the culture that we want. Uh, so we have to be careful with how that gets implemented um, or sort of communicated to people. And, and we try to, there are certain changes um, that we'll make sort of fast upfront. 
um, there will there are other ones that will sort of let play out. So you know, if we buy a company, you know, we we would prefer to sort of observe for a while before making any changes. So I'd say we probably, unless something's like egregious um, and like really not um, something that we agree with, we're probably okay to let it play out and honestly like hope that uh, hope, but sort of lay the the un, the the underpinnings for change in a sort of longer term nuanced way, instead of just coming in and saying like, hey, you need to do this, this, this is how we do things now, um, like this way. Uh, so I think that we are, we are patient um, and we are uh, sort of, I'm, I'm hopeful that like what we're doing is sort of, I'd say we're more like nudging companies in like a, a direction that we want as opposed to coming in and just sort of like totally eliminating stuff because then you eliminate the good stuff too and there's lots of good stuff happening in all the companies right <clears throat> you gave a an interesting talk at, at capital camp with will thorndike you know brent be sure interviewing both of you and used this analogy of like crew members versus crew leaders and employees and how to balance incentives for people that want to sort of grow their their career in a company and then for folks who are just very happy you know doing a great job in their job yep. maybe hit on that and how do you think about that as you get into these companies and start operating yeah so i mean i think that was one of the biggest um sort of shifts we had to have in our thinking um early on is that when you come from sort of this um Wall Street kind of like overachiever um, world, uh, you sort of assume that everybody like always wants to be like the next rung up in the ladder and everyone's motivated by money. And um, that's just like the world you live in. And, uh, you know, that is one part of the population is not part, like there are lots of other ways of, of approaching work and the value you get from it. Um, and some people just want to come to work and work their 40 hours and go home. And they don't necessarily want more responsibility. Uh, they don't necessarily want the additional money that comes with more responsibility. Um, they're not motivated by that. Um, and if anything, they reject it and um, find it to be sort of stressful and uncomfortable. And uh, in, in, in the world of our business, like that's, that's okay. And like, we don't wanna force those people out of our business because like some of those people are very good at doing what their job is. We don't need to force them out. Um, so we don't, you know, in a landscape company, like you don't really need like an up or out policy. Um, like maybe you do at like McKinsey um, but, or like Goldman Sachs iBanking. But for us, like, especially when you have um, sort of labor constraints, um, which a lot of blue collar um, workforces do, you need to make sure that you're providing like the space for everybody to have the experience that they want to have. So it's actually like a bit more nuanced where you have to allow the people who want to rise up to rise up um, and to give them more responsibility and um, compensation and all that stuff if that's the path they want. But you also have to allow people to say, hey, if you just want to be a crew member like and you show up every day and you do your job well and you don't use drugs or alcohol at work and you know you like all of these things like that you you have a spot on our team um and we're not going to force you to be something that you're not yeah that's and i love that but just 
I kind of want to drill a little bit deeper. How do you either create a transparent environment where you're like, okay, it's it's totally okay. In fact, we encourage you to be who you want to be because there's a space for you here. So is that sort of the route that you take or is it more of a, just sort of a one-on-one, like un- uncommunicated? Like, how do you go about that? So, I mean, so in our companies, to be clear, like this would be driven by the people running the companies. So, you know, I, for, for like, I am not the one having that conversation and I'm not the one shaping that. And frankly, if, if somebody came to me that was running our landscape company and said, Hey, you know what? Like, I think that we're going to be better off if we have a strong upper out policy and I want to implement that. We'd say, you know, we talk about it. Um, and you know, we'd say we support you and you should try that. You know, it like, that is not what has happened to date, but if somebody wanted to do that and had a good case for it, you know, they're welcome to try it. Um, it just hasn't been what we've observed so far. And so, uh, it, it, you know, and, and the reality is like in, in most of our companies, the people who want more responsibility and who are reaching for it, like, it's just, it is obvious. Like these are not large companies and they're the people who, um, you know, they, they come in to be a, a crew member and, you know, they're, they're just naturally gravitating to, to more, right? Like that's just, it, it's, it, it would be different if it was a, 10,000 person company, but these are all sort of 50 to 150 people companies, like the, the people who want more stand out. You, you don't really have to do a lot to, to, to know they're there. No, that makes total sense. Well, I want to, I have one more question yeah. for you before we go to the final three. Oh. And one of the things that the greatest investors sort of drill home is, well, one of them is margin of safety and mm-hmm. uh, what you're actually purchasing, but the other is some sort of competitive advantage. And if you don't have a competitive advantage, then you better have a good margin of safety. So I want to hear how you think about in, in like the small and medium-sized business space, right, where you don't have patents, you don't have economies of scale, uh, or maybe you do. I, I don't know. Last time I checked, nobody's got a patent on how to clear snow or mow, mow the lawn, right? So I want to hear about how do you think about competitive advantage in small business? So we talk about this topic a lot because it's like in our businesses, the the sort of notion that there, like I, I like I'm sure we've read a lot of the same like amazing you know case studies of like how Warren Buffett's companies have all these like competitive advantages and all this stuff. In our world, uh, I don't know if you own a house and have ever tried to get landscaping work done, but I'm going to get, or a contractor or anything, I'm going to guess you've called people and they haven't called you back. Has that, has that happened to you? Or you've asked for a quote and they've ghosted you? For, I, well, I live in an HOA community okay. and it's even worse because they've switched management companies twice in two years. And when I first bought the house in, or townhome in 2018, they said that they would be sending out a contractor to repair rotten boards and they just got replaced uh, two years later. So. Exactly. So in some markets, um, just having the ability to call people back provide quotes quickly and then actually do the work is a competitive advantage. And so it, it doesn't sound like that exciting or real, but like, that's the reality of it is like, we will get work if we actually call people back within 24 hours and we provide them with a quote. So 
the other competitive advantage that we do. And so that's like the base of it. And that's the reality for a lot of small businesses, um, especially in the trades. Um, the other thing is that in our market for especially um, for like snow removal, for instance, like you need quite a lot of equipment to do snow removal. So if we have a large corporate campus, like a hospital, um, school campus, something like that, they need a large player to actually have the equipment to service them. So there are actually are very few people that can service um, large campuses the way that we can, unless they want to hire someone where like, that is basically like, they're like, they're only, they're, they're, uh, they're just hiring off a one guy and his friend or like his like three crew members to do it. Um, whereas like some hospitals, like they pay us during the winter time to basically have a person on site all of the time in case, you know, because emergency rooms can't have any like snow and ice, right? And so they need black pavement all the time and you need a company of a certain size to be able to do that. And there just aren't that many people who, like there just aren't that many. Um, and so I'd say that that's like a competitive advantage um, in, and there are little things like that in all of the businesses we own um, that have to do with size, but not, you know, size means different things right like size in that example is 10 million of revenue maybe not you know a billion <laughs> uh so you you can achieve some sort of economies of scale um and have a unique position um when you're focusing on these smaller markets that, that it's probably easier to achieve than some people might think no that's really that's awesome and so so just to boil it down it sounds like execution you know, quick, quickly, so speed. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, the second one being being somewhat structural in nature, like someone would have to spend X amount of dollars to go buy, you know, five snowplows or, or whatever and start their company, um, sort of preventing people from just naturally just flooding that, that market. And the other, like something as simple as like, you know, we have workers' comp insurance for all of our employees because like that's the law and you have to do it. But, you know, we are a like we are a we like our companies are well run and professional and like we're doing all the things you want to do if you're just some small um hoa maybe you don't care but if you're a school like you you do care and so you're actually um gonna be asking the questions of like hey like if somebody if one of your employees falls on my property like are they going to sue you or me <laughs> You know, like, right. um, the, those are the questions, uh, you know, like, are you going to be provided, you know, because like we would be providing person with workers comp, somebody who is not doing things the right way um, isn't, and that liability might fall back on the site. Like, so things like that. So by having some scale and professionalism, we're actually like paying people properly. Um, we're providing like the proper insurance. We're doing all of those things that company or properties or clients of a certain size actually care about. Yeah. Yeah. No, that makes total sense. So that's a, a lot to chew on there. Yeah. All right. I want to wrap up and I've got three questions, just general questions that I like to ask everybody. And the first one is what personal values uh, are most important to you and how do they inform your day-to-day -day business? So I feel like our personal values because we're family run, right? So our personal values are very much embodied in, in the values of our you know, of, of Chenmark, um, the probably the the first and the most important uh, is like this this sort of leap of chase better, we say, and it's just 
always feeling like we can always be better. And I think that that, um, you know, it's a, it's a constant pursuit of, of learning and improving ourselves um, and finding challenges in all parts of our lives, um, sort of that's ongoing. So the point to us isn't like this, like eventual place we're getting to, it's just like in the pursuit of being better all the time. And that's how we're chasing it. And so I think that to me, that's, you know, my husband, James is one who articulated it. It's something that I think we've always wanted to, to do. Uh, like, I think we've embodied it for, for a really long time. I think we're really lucky because I think all three of us are sort of wired that way. Um, but that's, that's probably the most, um, the one that, that comes to mind. The second one that I have is what advice would you give yourself before starting out as an investor and an entrepreneur, you know, 10 years into it? Oh, um, knowing, knowing what you know now. So, well, like the one would be like, don't work with former owners. <laughs> that would be, but, but a lot of people did tell us that when we were starting, we ignored them because we thought we were special. Um, so, um, that would probably, that would, that's, I'd say 90% of our headaches have been from, um, or not headaches, but just issues have come from like us having, um, sort of just a different vision for what a company might be than the person that was staying on and um, sort of having to resolve that. So that would definitely be my, um, my biggest thing. Um, that, uh, and, and the advice, we still do this. So like uh, the thing that that served us really well is we all try to get to the gym like regularly. And even when it's like really stressful and busy and there's all sorts of stuff going on and you know, all this stuff, I think that, that habit um, of doing something outside of work, having sort of a, you know, physical activity, all that stuff, I think has really been um, like positive and helped us um, like manage our, you know, any stress that comes our way. Cause we might be stressed, but we go to the gym and, you know, we feel like things aren't that big of a deal afterwards. Uh, so I'd say I would, we do that now, but I would, you know, make sure to tell my former self to make sure to find the time to do that. I like that. I'm, uh, I'm a big advocate of, of working out and running as well. Are you into uh, CrossFit? Do I remember that correctly? Yes. We used to be runners and then we started doing CrossFit and we just like it. Interesting. Yeah, that's a, that is, that's a transition I don't hear a lot of. I hear a lot of folks who are into lifting and kind of want a little bit more cardio, but mm -hmm. that's interesting. Yeah. So we, we were like, well, James and I in particular were really into running. Um, and uh james got into crossfit took me about a year but i went to and it's a couple like i like the competitive nature of it um i like the ability to keep score which is another trend mark value is to keep score um to kind of know how you're progressing both against your former self as well as as um, other people in the class um and then the thing i think that keeps us coming back um, is that there's a wonderful community to it. Uh, and especially since we've sort of bounced around a little bit, um, it's really nice to be able to, you know, go to a gym wherever you go and sort of have an instant community and, and network of, of people that, um, you know, are, you have something in common with. So, you know, we've gone across this whole world. We go wherever we travel. Um, and it's been great. All right. The last one, uh, before we wrap up, what business doesn't exist that needs to? Yeah, this is, so this is just because I, this is a, a stupid idea, but it's the one on the top of mind right now. Um, is I wish 
that so a lot of times customers or people just customers in general will have a complaint about a service that the business owner feels is totally unjustified and often that customer will be usually demanding a refund because of that thing and the business owner doesn't want to give it because it says hey like you know, you agreed to our terms and conditions, like we performed the work the way it was scoped out, like we did all these things and like you're, um, you're asking for a refund and like we don't think we should have to give one to you. And then the customer says like, if you don't give me a refund, like I'm gonna go and Yelp and tell like the world about how you're a terrible person. And, um, and then the business owner says like, do I want that to happen? Like maybe sometimes they're like, sure, maybe sometimes they're like, no. Um, what I wish there was, was an independent group that a consumer and a business could just submit their both of their perspectives to and i think it could be crowdsourced but you know person could say hey like i thought i was going to get this you know you said you were going to plow my um driveway like here's some pictures and like it's not plowed and like i want my money back and business owner says here's your contract it says we'd only plow if there was, you know, two inches of snow or over, like there's an inch and a half, like we're not obligated to plow your driveway, right? Like this is the situation. Um, and you could submit both sides and then some group of people, maybe it's crowdsourced where they can vote, make whatever they said, should this person get their money back or not? Maybe they should, maybe they shouldn't. And then both sides can go to this place to agree, and they agree that whatever the outcome is, they will go with it. So sort of like a crowdsourced arbitration in a way. Yeah, um, and maybe it's written into their service contract or something, you know, in the fine print. Right, right. So some, so, so you know, and then we say, okay, you know, this group would be kind of like a, you know, you've got a certain amount of time, 30 days, maybe, whatever the crowd decides after 30 days, like that's what the business will do. And then like, it's over. And so if there is some, sort of way that you don't have to get in fights with your customer because it, it it having seen this it's always um okay so if if there was in our opinion right, we're, we're the business owner if if we didn't perform something we tend to say oh that was our bad the the headache comes from you're like well no like we we did what we said we were going to do and you're still upset and then it, then it's a customer service thing of like the Ritz Carlton might say like, oh, well, you should give everybody a refund because like then it buys like lifelong like value. But then yeah, brand value. And yeah. yeah. And you're like, well, like fine Ritz Carlton, but like not everyone's the Ritz Carlton. And sometimes people are just taking advantage. And um, like it would be nice to have a way to resolve those things that was not just like you fighting with the customer um, because like nobody wants that. Um, so that is my idea of the moment. If somebody could make that happen, I would use it. All of our companies would use it. I love that idea. And I actually think you are really onto something for two reasons. So I work in real estate and the trades and property management get a terrible rap and they perform a valuable service. Uh, and sometimes they do mess up and sometimes the people working there just get super stressed because people are yelling at them or they want something or, and what happens is, is your, you know, for example, property management, your customer is your investor, not your tenant. That's something that most people get confused about. Your 
customer is the investor, not the tenant, but the tenant is the person that you're typically dealing with. And a lot of times when disputes happen, they can get ugly very quickly, even if it's in the lease. And there's no real recourse for them going and just slandering someone on Google uh, reviews or Yelp or wherever. And it's easy for them, for the, for example, the business owner to go and respond and say, Mr. So-and-so, this happened, this happened, this happened. Um, this is how we handled it per the law, you know, yada, yada, yada. But at that point, your stars have gone from five to four, you know, and then over time it goes to 2.5, right? So it's kind of like you're like a neutral. What, is that, what does that even mean? You're a neutral business? I mean, if you look at like property management businesses, I've never seen one that has 100 reviews that's 5.0. Never. And so it becomes a function of the industry rather than the actual business itself. Especially small businesses. Like I have right. definitely seen multiple emails where they're like, I know that's what I agreed to, but if you don't give me a refund, um, like I'm going to go, like I have all, I have my reviews ready. I'm going to post them everywhere. My wife and my friends are too. So like, give me back my money. Oh like, gosh. And um, yeah. like, you know, what's the business owner, what's, you know, what's the business owner supposed to do? You're, you give the refund, but you're like, is that really like what? Yeah, it doesn't feel good. It doesn't feel good. It does not feel good. So that's my, I would love for that not to be a thing anymore. Yeah, no, that's my favorite one thus far. There have been some other, other good ones, but that's, that's great. Well, Trish Higgins, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Chenmark, if you've got a small business, you are retiring soon, you've got a family business, you're looking to sell, uh, give Trish a call. I'm sure she'd love to, to chat with you. So I'll be putting this out on my blog and, um, you know, best of luck to you. Thank you. I appreciate it. I would also say that we talk to a lot of small business owners that are just thinking about their options. And so it doesn't necessarily have to be with us, but for us, you know, the more businesses that get passed down to, to good buyers, you know, the more small businesses that are preserved in the economy, the more small business jobs there are, like that's a good thing for everybody. And so we certainly talk with people about saying, hey, you know, how do I transition my company to my employees? You know, how do I think about transitioning to, you know, my kids, you know, it's the world we're in. and. Um, you know, we uh, talk with a lot of people who, you know, it might not, we might not be the right fit for them, um, but there might be another option that does work. Um, and so we're always happy to chat with people who are thinking about uh, business transition. This is Benton here again. Thanks so much for listening to the Circle of Competence podcast. To find more episodes like this one, go to circleofcompetence.co. That's circleofcompetence.co to sign up for my weekly podcast emails as well as a monthly summary of links to blog posts and articles I liked most from the previous month. Finally, if you enjoyed the show, please leave us a rating on iTunes, which will help more people discover the work we are doing to explore the entrepreneurial investor's journey. Thanks again for listening.